everyone. You are in the game, a podcast about sports and business and football, Anand. <laughs> this week, it's all about football. European football. Or European football, to be precise. This is Vladimir Bosanets, uh, one of your co-hosts coming in from Seattle, Washington. And I'm joined by my co-host, Anand. Hi, this is Anand Punjabi coming in from London, England, where it's all happening. Football, European football is at war this week. Very much so. We thought we'd catch a little piece of that and share our views uh, on what's going on in the proposed, we'll use that word strongly, proposed European Soccer League, as things are changing so rapidly. But let's get to it. You know, yesterday's news seems like last year's news already. But let's uh, quickly just uh, summarize what's happened. Sunday night, a press release was was provided uh, through 12 European football or soccer teams, yeah. uh, six from England, uh, six from the Premier League. That's Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, and Tottenham Hotspur. Three from La Liga in Spain, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. And three from Serie A in Italy, AC Milan, Inter Milan, and Juventus. So these 12 teams form apparently a 15-team breakaway European Super League, we don't know who the other three are, probably because PSG, Bayern Munich, and Borussia Dortmund were invited, <laughs> and they said, no thanks, we're not interested. Right. Not yet, maybe. Not yet. Not yet. We'll talk That's about right. that. Yeah, not we'll yet. see. <laughs> so, so it is this 12 for now. Yeah. This is who they are, and they wish to form this new European Super League. This is not the first time we've talked about this, Vlad. Right. This has been right. going on for a couple of decades, really, off and on. And um, most recently, I think we talked about it in November when uh, former Real Madrid president Florentino Perez said, hey, you know, this is going to happen. He had just left his job in Madrid. Was it, was it Perez? I do apologize if I've got that wrong. But a Real Madrid executive left his job recently to go and figure out a European Super League. And that was just in November. Yep. I guess here we are. This is this is uh, at least until today become reality in some ways. We have an official yep. announcement. They have a website. They have a press release. What do you think, Vlad? So I think it's interesting, and I think we should probably provide a, a little bit of context on your background and my background, Anna. Yeah. So I'm I was born and raised in Europe. I'm probably best described as a former European right now, <laughs> and I think. My enthusiasm behind this uh, Super League definitely puts me in the former European <laughs> camp. And current American. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, Anand, you grew up in Asia, in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, you are now European for all intents, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was, right? I was until Brexit, but yeah, let's just, let's, let's, let's put, let's put, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that, let's put now, that aside. <laughs> now you're a Brexiteer, yeah. but okay, whatever. But it's interesting. I think, you know, this is a very different model for Europe. Um, the teams in European sports in general have this, you know, relegation system where if you're not playing really well, you have a bad season, you're at the bottom of the, of the league, you drop down into the second league. Uh, you know, similarly, the leagues below the first league, the teams that play really, really well, you know, move on up, yeah, right? And there's promoted, this sort of constant right. flow of kind of riches, if you will, between um, between the teams. So this model of the Super League is basically the, I guess, best way to describe it is the American model, you know, which is a closed sort of loop uh, system. 
no team falls out, no team gets in. Uh, they do expand it every now and then, right, uh, for other reasons. But uh, but you know, for the most part, they're proposing this to be kind of a closed loop sort of system where these clubs, similar to the way NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, sort of the you know the clubs in the in the U.S. sports system would uh, operate. So. Personally, Anand, I think uh, this is great. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think from a personal point of view that um, a lot of these clubs are at a very different level as a brand and as a club and as a team and as a sort of a global kind of, you know, renown from some of their, you know, lower rank neighbors. And I think that as, you know, private enterprises as they are, they should be able to choose their own fortunes. Now, that's one angle. Anand, let's hear what you have to say. I think to some degree they do choose their own fortunes in that a good chunk of the way in which they can promote themselves, uh, monetize their brands, um, is already in their hands. You know, they can they can... They can market themselves on the internet any which way they want. They have sure. they have their highlight packages, for example, you know, interviews, all that multimedia, all that content is in their complete sure. control. However, the big money, uh, let's just be clear about this. Uh, let me just take a step back. It appears that this European Super League is there effectively to replace the Champions League. What is the Champions League? The Champions League is the competition where the best teams from all uh, UEFA uh, countries compete to sort of declare the winner, the best team in Europe that season. And the yep. the lucrative broadcast rights are, are biggest in the Champions League. There's a second tier European competition called the Europa League, but that's really not a patch on the Champions League. So, yeah. you know, every team is striving to get into the Champions League. Yes, one point of clarification, if I understand this yeah. correctly, Anna, the, the the Champions League is sort of a year removed. So you have to win a championship of your own country, let's say year one, but you really play in the Champions League the following year. So you might have a totally different team competing in that Championship League. Is that is that an accurate uh, statement? So the Champions League uh, is actually a misnomer. Yes, the champion from a particular country gets the opportunity to compete, enter at some stage, whether it's a pre-qualifying stage if you come from a smaller league or into the main draw, as they say, with, uh, with all the bigger league teams. But you don't just have to win it. You can come first and second, first, second and third, or in the case of England and Spain, I believe, you can come first, second, third, or fourth and still qualify for the Champions League. That's why in England, for example, coming top four is a very big thing because if you come first, second, third, or fourth, you you qualify for the Champions League. And yes, it's absolutely correct to say that if you win the 2021 uh, season or come in the top four, you will be playing in the Champions League in the 21-22 season. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. But it wouldn't yep. be a totally different team. There might be one or two changes in the roster, but you know the core of the team doesn't change uh, dramatically. You know from season to season, certainly. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Yeah. For the for the most part. Yeah. That's for the right. most part. Yeah. So so they're looking to replace the Champions League, really. Yeah. Yeah. No. And um, I think you said this really, really, you know, well. Um, 
UEFA sort of controls kind of the purse at this point, right? Uh, for the for for the big money in European soccer, yeah. And um, there's a little bit of a sort of uh, what's the best way to explain this, but maybe a cynical perspective that a lot of these clubs are now foreign owned, meaning uh, there's some American. Uh, ownership, Chinese ownership, Middle Eastern ownership, and um, the cynical perspective is that you know greed is driving these clubs to sort of form something on their own, uh, sort of uh, you know out of um, out of this sort of way of uh, you know how things have been done for decades, <laughs> and certainly not in consideration of what the fans want to happen. Right? I mean, that's probably a kind of a, a fair assessment of somebody who's critical of this of this formation that's certainly probably the fans view that's probably the average view that you would you would get from the fans yep yep it's not too far removed from the view you might get from an owner or the board of directors of a club that isn't you know hasn't been invited to be part of the big 12 or the big 15 they would probably use the word self-serving you know rather than greedy (laughs) for example right but yes of course these clubs are acting in their own right. self-interest. I mean, I think they would come out and say that themselves. However, you know, they have taken pains to say, hey, actually, we are going to be passing on far more money to the wider football community, to the lower league clubs, to the football pyramid, as it's described. So money right. is going to trickle down or flow down to the so-called smaller clubs, the lower league clubs, and they argue even more money than ever before will go to grassroots soccer, you know, throughout Europe. It's not just about these owners lining their pockets with uh, revenues that are likely to be far in excess of what UEFA currently hands out to the participants. Right. So to be also perfectly clear here, and, and maybe let's jump into this, Anna, yeah. but you and I sit on a, on a kind of slightly opposing perspective on, on, on this issue, yeah. right? So let's, let's discuss that because I think this illustrates, I think, in a way how uh, this is playing itself out in the media and through fans and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So as I declared earlier, I'm a former European <laughs> and, and I'm certainly going to be voted a former European by anybody who even uh, was on the fence um, up until now. Yeah. I So, you know, I look at this as, uh, you know, these clubs are private enterprises, I guess, um, that I agree that there's a lot of emotional connection with these teams in their, in their home cities, with their fans and sort of the history behind that. I get all that, but at the end of the day, they're private enterprises and in private enterprise, you know, you get to, you know, decide what you want to do with that. You know, that happens in whether you own a small business, whether you're in a house, you own a piece of land, you know, you, you get to sort of decide how and what to do with this thing, right? Also, I think that um, one of the things that I've, that I've seen is that a lot of these clubs uh, spare maybe one or two of these uh, 12 are in a lot of debt, actually, and so the current system has made it financially difficult for them to operate on a on a long term basis. So Tottenham Hotspur, which which you know you had mentioned earlier, is hovering somewhere around you know six hundred million pounds in debt. That's probably close to seven eight hundred million dollars, right? Uh, Manchester United is hovering somewhere around four hundred fifty million pounds in you know debt. That's you know five fifty six hundred million dollars now. One could argue, look, uh, 
you know, Glazer family saddle, saddled a club with a lot of debt and pay themselves a lot of money. Okay, fine. Um, but nonetheless, um, they are in financial straits, I would argue, right? These are, these are big numbers, essentially, right? And so the other argument is, look, um, I'm an owner of a club like Liverpool, like, you know, Juventus, like, uh, you know, AC Milan. As I said earlier, these are brand names that are known throughout the globe, if I want to create something that is essentially going to leverage that name throughout the world, um, this is this makes a lot of sense to me. Why should I? Why should I continue to do something in a way where, yes, I still continue to be like the best known name um, in 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 sort of you know my country, but at the end of the day, you know those those big names, those big name tournaments, those big names, sort of, you know, games, you know, me against Liverpool or me against, you know, Juventus only gets to happen every now and then, right? And so the argument here is that, look, as an owner, I can create a lot more value. I can reduce this debt because now I can collect broadcast revenue globally, not just from, you know, what, you know, FS sells, right? And I can control my, uh, my own destiny. I think there is an argument to be made for finding a way to maximize your brand. And that's hap that happens in every industry. When it comes to football in Europe, you know, people will argue football fans are, are, are stuck in the past. Typically, they're traditionalists. They don't see, they don't choose to embrace, you know, change. Um, they don't look at technology in the way they should in terms of how it can enhance things. And, you know, they just want to go through wooden turnstiles and, you know, have wooden beams in their stadiums and that type of thing. Right. Which is fair enough. I can understand how, how people might, might view, you know, some, some, some soccer fans, you know, from, from Europe and South America, for example, in that way. But sport, I feel in general, is really nothing without fans. It's nothing without supporters. And, if the if the owners and you know the custodians of these teams choose to make decisions without understanding the fans view of the ramifications of these decisions um then they might get into trouble uh sure you can you can buy and sell players you know as you should uh, you know, with your own decision making, with your own tools and, and technologies, you might choose to build a stadium or not build a stadium. You might choose to move, you know, your head office from one part of the city to the other. I, I get all of that. Yeah. This this is a little bit this is a little bit bigger than that. What, what what's actually happening is they're they're discussing really changing more or less the 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 complete foundations of the way um, this sport uh, has been operating you know since since sure. it's, since it started and i'm not necessarily saying it's wrong to do that completely but the fact that they announced it on a sunday night you know through a press release on their websites you know apparently without any engagement with the leagues that they participate in without consulting with the supporter fan groups the supporters trust for example or with other teams has taken some people by surprise and and some people think you know this is a, a very poor approach to to announcing this yeah you know it, it's a it's a very american um approach i would argue uh most of the sort of big mergers and kind of business announcements are made on a sunday afternoon sure. to uh 
through a through a press release and the fact that you know they've got JP Morgan here underwriting essentially this uh venture doesn't doesn't surprise me that that's that that's how it how it was done well one of the glazers used to work for for JP Morgan he used to be an expert they, yeah. so that, that connection must be must be right there yeah 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 of course of course and and I look I I think you make a very you know very valid point and in a few minutes we're going to you know have our conversation here with our, with our friend Mark Edelman who is an attorney uh in New York dealing with sort of you know sports legal issues and 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 we'll we'll address some of this stuff and he also makes a very good point about you know, you can't disregard the fans. I and I agree with that a hundred percent. That's what they've done. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and I wonder, like at some point, you just you know, if you go and sort of you know create committees to go and explore this with fans and that kind of stuff, I think you can kind of guess where that's those conversations are going to go. And I'm wondering if this is just sort of like, look, let's just announce it and sort of let the chips fall where they may, and then let's create out of that something that would be, you know, workable, right? You and I were chatting about this earlier, you know, do you think this is just posturing? They were were just trying to, you know, negotiate with, you know, UEFA. UEFA was just coming up with their own sort of retooling of the Champions League, right? Correct. More teams, more money. I think the, yeah, right, right. I think the fact that they have JP Morgan kind of signed up, ready to go, uh, that they're essentially giving every club $500 million just to sign on the dotted line here. It, it seems to me like it's a little bit further further along. I I also think that you know um, whether it's going to be successful or not is is going to depend on on fans quite a bit. And and I think you're right about that. I think Mark talks about that also. At the end of the day, I wonder you know whether the ownership is just going to do what they feel is the right thing to do for themselves. And sort of let kind of things go where they go. And I'm not advocating for that, but I but I wonder if as they sort of drag this thing along, whether whether they even you know consider the fans further, right? Well, they may not have a choice because this is a league sport. This isn't entrepreneur deciding what he does with his with his apartment complex or what he does, you know, with with his factory. You know, these teams participate in leagues that involve other teams, uh, that involve fans of other teams, and and that involve, you know, livelihoods of of many thousands of people. They cannot, I feel, operate in this bubble, and as the other sort of executives have been saying, operate in in such a self serving manner. There's too much emotion tied up in. Uh, European football, you know, from the fans primarily, right? To right. to allow effectively, you know, besides Daniel Levy, uh, who's English, uh, to allow foreign owners to to ride roughshod over 130, 140 years of of tradition. I'm not saying we shouldn't have change, and maybe it's absolutely correct that UEFA itself is considered you know, a corrupt organization. And I think it is correct that UEFA should be held to account uh, as to how they're distributing the money uh, that they receive from broadcasting rights. You know, we live in a world where you can go direct to consumer. So yes, it's it's clearly more lucrative if I'm a big brand to go direct to my fan base and see what I can negotiate with them and earn from them directly than, than have this collective organization that apparently, you know, 
is known to to operate in 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 a less than uh, you know a perfect manner themselves negotiate on their behalf. How, yeah. But how you go about doing that, I think, is one of the things that they've got wrong here. I think. Yeah. So before we wrap this up. Just a couple of points that I'd like to make, Anand, and you and I were born in countries that don't exist anymore, right? Effectively, <laughs> Hong Kong in name exists, but Hong Kong is not the Hong Kong that you That's grew up correct. in. That's I correct. was born and raised in what's now called former Yugoslavia. Now it's you know six countries, right? Seven, perhaps. And the point here is that you know you and I have learned this from our lives that the only sort of constant in life is change, right? I, I hear you on on the sort of you know historical sort of perspective on how soccer was organized and football is organized. I also think that there is a healthy level of innovation that needs to enter every business and sports included. We have seen and we have sort of you know um, you know celebrated I think innovation in in tennis and in other sort of areas, right? And maybe that's partially why I you know, personally feel that, you know, this is kind of, you know, new, it's innovative, this could sort of spur some interest from a global basis around a, you know, group of teams that I grew up watching and was excited about watching and that kind of stuff, right? Um, but as Mark will iron out in uh, our conversation with him, there there are two sort of hurdles here. One is a hurdle with the fans, which I don't know that it can be overcome that easily, the other hurdle is with, you know, UEFA. UEFA does not really seem to be standing on solid footing with some of these th- threats that they're making, and we'll, we'll explore with uh, Mark Y. Um, but before we get into that, sort of your, your final thoughts on kind of how you think this might shape out over the next, you know, weeks, months as we, as we continue to... Uh, Look at this. Well, I think there are many other points that we haven't had a chance to make, and you know, maybe if we we canvass uh, our fans and our friends uh, who are fans and get their views on it, which we hope to do uh, in a follow up episode. You know, one point I, I really want to make here is where is the sporting jeopardy when it comes to the matches that are played in a league that you're never going to be relegated from? You're always going to be part of this league, no matter how badly you do. Where is the challenge? If there's no competition, if there's no ins- real incentive to do well, who's going to watch it? Where is where is what is the point in it? Really, I don't understand the point in <laughs> well, you know, besides besides you know the owners, these small handful of owners uh, making being able to buy five or six more private jets every year for themselves and buy another couple of islands in the Caribbean, what's in it for everyone else? I just yeah. I just don't get it. I'm excited when my team gets three points in a league match because it moves them closer to qualifying for the Champions League because the Champions League is great. You know, Liverpool will, if they progress, will play Real Madrid, you know, they will play Juventus or Barcelona as they've done over the last few seasons. But they have to earn the right to get there. If you're not earning the right to the riches, I don't. I don't see the point. I just don't see why yeah. I should be. My team should be handed three hundred million dollars a year for what? <laughs> just because we've got a new platform? Well, no. But I think. I. Th- I, th- I think. I think. I think the guide. The guiding post here is uh, what's happening in the in the NFL, essentially, right? Well, if, maybe if, the guiding if you post look at for the you, NFL, but I don't really. I don't use that as a guide. When it comes to be to be a sports fan, no. As as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, I see the merits of yeah of of some merits from those structures. But sure. But and as a sports fan, me, no. 
Let me just make one sort of last counterpoint here. And I think you and I have talked about, you know, the you know, revenues that each team in the in in the NFL, you know, makes. We've also uh talked about how the the top shows, the top broadcast shows on TV yeah. in the US are, you know, Sunday night, Monday night, Thursday night, Friday night football, right? For sure. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the point that, um, the fans are not going to be into this, I'm, I don't quite buy it. I, I get the anger. Um, I also wonder if it's sort of a vocal minority. No, 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 no. Maybe, no. maybe. Not I don't even know. close. And we'll, we'll see about that. We'll, it's 90, we'll it's 95% right? plus right now, but you know what? Everyone's angry. Emotion gets gets obviously sometimes the better of people's judgment. Let's wait and see what happens. They will come with a revised plan, perhaps. Perhaps they yeah, misjudged. Yeah, they, sure. They've misjudged the the reaction. I'm sure they were prepared for a black backlash, but the fact that we know now from a live situation that Chelsea have pulled out in the last hour, Man City have pulled out, Man United's chairman has resigned. Apparently, Juventus's chairman has resigned. There's rumors that Atletico Madrid are pulling out. Things are changing very dynamically. Yeah. They're probably yeah. going to have to go well, back to the drawing board and, and figure something out. 100%. 100%. I think we're going to see a revision of this. This is nowhere near you know, done. Yeah. And as we'll explore um, with, with our guest, Mark, in the, in the next segment here, UEFA doesn't have a whole lot of ground to stand on here. So I think uh, they're going to have to come to the negotiating table and figure something out. This is going to continue to evolve and we'll keep following it. So stay tuned. Uh, When we come back, we're going to hear from our good friend, Mark Edelman. Mark, good to hear from you again. Uh, it's been a quick sort of week or a couple of weeks since we chatted last, but you know the uh, sports business news has uh, been hit with a big tsunami, I guess. Well, maybe not tsunami is a, maybe a bad analogy. Could tsunami kind of can see coming, I suppose. This one maybe is more like a earthquake, I suppose, in uh, European soccer or soccer football world here. Um, so. Thoughts on uh, thoughts on the news? Yeah, we're talking about the European Soccer League, of course, and um, the announcement uh, on Sunday night and uh, subsequent subsequent uh, events that have followed. But perhaps you could just give us your take on on the whole principle behind um, this new league that they're thinking about forming. Well, first, I understand why uh, many European soccer fans are very upset. Soccer fans, much like baseball fans in the United States, are traditionalists. There's a league format they've been comfortable with over a very long period of time. And along walk 12 owners from 12 of the most powerful and most lucrative teams uh, that want to break away from the traditional structure. And to a soccer traditionalist, this certainly sounds like sacrilege. Uh, and <laughs> yes. it certainly sounds like it is a money grab. Uh, and to be really frank, yes, it probably is sacrilege. And no doubt this is a money grab. Uh, what makes this so interesting to me, however, uh, is I'm not convinced that the 12 big guys out there, the way they're being described, uh, Man U and the 11 teams that are coming along with them, are really the most powerful entity out there. Uh, the most powerful entity, from my perspective, is UEFA, which operates under FIFA, uh, which is the entire confederation of soccer teams right. uh, represented by their countries. And this reminds me very much of what we saw in the early 1980s in college sports, when the most powerful colleges, uh, led by Georgia and Oklahoma, 
uh, wanted to do certain things differently from the NCAA. They wanted yeah. to create their own broadcasting agreements and make more money. And then the response by the NCAA was they turned to these large colleges and said, listen, if you do this, we're going to throw you out. We're not just throwing you out for football, but we're throwing you out for all sports. And we're going to come after your athletes so they can't participate in any sport. Yeah, Mark. And just for the benefit of our listeners, so on the heels of the announcement of the of the Big 12 or the ESL uh, or however you want to call this sort of group, the European Super League organization, UEFA, UEFA, right, came out and basically uh, very strong words and said, we're going to prohibit uh, players from these teams to compete in European championships, even at the World Cup, potentially, right? So they came out very strongly, obviously, against the formation of the Super League, but also with some punitive kind of decisions around how they will treat any potential team joining this group of 12. So that's that's just the sort of the baseline for that. And I don't think UEFA could do this. So we went from it looking like these 12 large market teams by trying to create a closed structure league uh, where you to use a hockey analogy, engaging in a power play. Uh, but ultimately, this far bigger entity, UEFA, uh, is now threatening to collude against the players on these teams. Right. <laughs> uh, and interestingly, I understand very much why soccer fans throughout big parts of Europe are unhappy with the Super League teams and don't want to see this happen and want to protest against this. And maybe their protest should work. But there's a difference between the Super League not taking off because fans don't want this and they're going to protest against it and they're going to go to games, uh, and this not taking off because all of the other soccer clubs in Europe uh, are now engaging in a collective protest against these teams uh, and against their players. The first one is free market. Uh, the UEFA response, uh, if taking place in the United States, would very likely amount to a Sherman Act Section 1 violation. Uh, and even under EC law, which I don't know as well as U.S. law, but even under uh, European community law, uh, seems likely to be an antitrust violation or a competition law yep. violation yep. as well if yep. this moves forward. Do you think this is really just knee-jerk sort of rhetoric coming out from UEFA uh, in, a, in a sort of panic-driven stream of, of tweets or media releases just to, just to try and uh, scare the Big 12 a little bit? Surely, the, surely they would know uh, the legal UEFA's, position before they say something uh, like that. I think UEFA is serious. The same way, and going back to the analogy I gave about where the NCAA went after Georgia and Oklahoma and the other 12 or so colleges that wanted to partially right. break away. Now, the reason why I believe UEFA is so upset is not sanctity of the sport. I understand all the fans that are out protesting because they want the sanctity of the sport. Uh, but in UEFA's case, uh, I think the members of UEFA want the same thing that the Super League teams want, and that's revenue. And from the standpoint of UEFA, if the 12 most powerful, most successful soccer teams in the world are breaking away and are going to create their own games and their own television contracts, now, this makes UEFA second-rate. There might be certain parts of the world and certain areas that will still watch UEFA because it's UEFA. But in the long run, if the dominant professional soccer league in the world becomes the Super League and UEFA is second tier, well, second tier does not get the broadcasting deals as first tier. 
Uh, so this is a very real financial fear. Is it fair to say that because we now live in a digital world um, where very rapidly uh, linear broadcasting is falling by the wayside, particularly when it comes to sports, professional sports, the opportunities are now very clear to any you know, newly formed organization like this European Soccer League, and if they indeed have J.P. Morgan backing them, you know, to the tune of four billion dollars, Amazon, you know, the most cash-rich organization in the world, could very easily be, you know, the the first candidate to pick up the rights to stream this new European Soccer League to to their, their millions. The second underwriter of this league. Well, that's right. right. That's right. And maybe they're kind of waiting in the wings and maybe, you know, someone like Amazon, someone like Netflix, you know, some tech-based organization which has the infrastructure, has the brand, and already has an existing captive audience is waiting in the wings to pick this up. Do you think, do you think that's in play already, perhaps? I think yes, and I don't think it even requires uh, this movement to over-the-top television, even though that is what's happening. I might be the only person in the world to say this, but I was not surprised by the Super League announcement. Uh, and I think the real precursor to this, and we know a number of the Super League entrants come from the Premier League, I think what really made this possible was over the past four or five years, the airing of Premier League soccer in the United States. Uh, and the interesting reality that Americans were choosing to watch Premier League soccer, which at the time was the highest level of soccer on television, uh, perhaps even to the expense of watching the minor league MLS. Now, if that same statement is true throughout large parts of the world, uh, whether it be traditional television networks or over the top, uh, if you could create a truly premier league uh, that would subvert television interest in anything below that, uh, there is incredible money-making opportunity through both advertising and selling of subscriptions to watch these games. Uh, and I think the 12 teams that started the Super League clearly knew this. Uh, and given that three of those 12 teams have American-based yep. ownership, I think this was a very careful effort to not only capitalize this, but to create a closed league, which is a league without promotional yep. relegation. That would be the dominant sports league in the world for that respective sport. Uh, and as we know throughout the world, and pick any sport you want, uh, the disparate financial opportunities between the number one major league and then the number two in the world are night and day. Uh, so it's the opportunity for these 12 team owners to attempt to catapult themselves into a permanent major league, uh, much as we see in the four premier sports in the United States. That's right. I think it's easy to to push off this and say, look, it's the greedy Americans and and I'm looking at the list and it looks like four of the of the 12 teams are owned by US US owners. That's Arsenal, AC Milan, Liverpool and Man U. It's it's easy to sort of say, you know, this is, you know, the American greedy capitalists are, you know, moving in. 
I also think there's something about you know these you know brands on a global market essentially. When you think about AC Milan and Inter Milan and you know Liverpool and you know you know sports teams like that. I mean these clubs are known in Asia, in Australia, and South America, North America, right? If the NFL just closed its negotiations, you know, a couple of months ago, last month, as a matter of fact, right, with a hundred and ten billion dollars, you know, over an eleven-year eleven-year period, these guys must be aware of the value of their brands, and they must be thinking to themselves, "What what are we doing? A- am I am I in the same league as some of these, you know, little?" clubs that have just, you know, been relegated up from the second league or 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 these, you know, you know, consistent kind of middle of the league sort of um, you know, hang arounds. Is this where I want to be uh for, you know, the rest of eternity? And and I think the answer is no. Let me ask you, Mark, if you could make a prediction. The breaking news, as I'm sure you've been hearing, is that Chelsea and Man City have announced that they are pulling out of the European Super League, at least for now in its uh, current iteration. Uh, there are strong rumors that Atletico Madrid have also pulled out. We know that Ed Woodward, the chairman of Manchester United, has resigned uh, this evening. And some speculative rumors that Agnelli of Juventus, the chairman of Juventus, he is also uh, about to resign. Given that this has recently transpired in the last couple of hours. It might appear that the European League, Super League, in its current format, is going to have to rethink uh, their approach and maybe come back uh, and try and fight another day. Do you think that this is just a a pause now before the inevitable occurs? Or is the fan backlash, the backlash from the governing bodies, UEFA, FIFA, the the backlash from the leagues themselves, the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, and all the other teams who are not involved in the European Super League, do you think that will hold sway? Well, you asked me a very complex question, and I think there are two things we have to separate okay. from one another. One being fan backlash and the other being UEFA collective backlash. Fan backlash could destroy this. Uh, if the fan backlash is sustained and genuine. Uh, for this to work, you need to have a consumer base. And if at the end of the day, the fans of these teams, and all because you say something doesn't mean you'll credibly do this. But if the fans of these teams simply say, we're not watching, we're not going, we're not playing, we're not supporting this, we hate now. Uh, theoretically, they could derail this. I mean, it's no different from when Coca-Cola thought they had something great coming out with yeah. new Coke in the mid-1980s. And every Coca-Cola drinker said this is horrible, and they had to backtrack. So, I mean, the fan uprisings, if that is a real thing... Uh, could push them back to the bargaining table and push this away with respect to fans. And that's what consumers are supposed to do. Consumers are supposed to voice opposition to things they don't like, and consumers are supposed to vote with their feet and not purchase products they're not happy with, and that's how consumer well-being is protected. That's the way free market capitalism is supposed to work. But that is separate from something else which is causing chaos here. And this is all the other member entities of UEFA coming together. 
and using their near monopoly power over the soccer market to agree to a form of collusion to boycott not only these teams, but the players on these teams from competing in the World Cup because they do not want these teams to be separating in certain ways from UEFA. Trying to exert pressure by getting the players under contract with these teams to move away from the teams by threatening their boycott and trying to get the player, the fans all upset about the potential creation of the Super League by letting them think they won't get to see their favorite players in the World Cup anymore. And that is not what free markets are supposed to do. That is a restraint of trade. That's a collusive behavior. Now, I am not representing anybody or advising any of the teams in this particular situation. It's one of the rare cases where at this precise moment I could speak completely freely uh, <laughs> because I don't have any clients in here. But quite frankly, if I were representing any of these clubs or if I were representing J.P. Morgan, uh, I would be having very serious co conversations about potentially bringing under European competition law a claim against the members of UEFA uh, for concertedly attempting to boycott, if not just the teams themselves, but players who are on the team. And that's where things get dicey, to the extent yeah. that this is not just consumers voting with their feet to make this fail, but a far broader conglomerate uh, engaging in a restraint of trade to attempt to destroy the Super League. Uh, that's the type of behavior that could end up in years of competition law litigation. Well, I don't think any of those entities would want to um, spend their time involved with that. I can't imagine. Mark... You came on at short notice uh, today, and Vlad and I are very grateful that um, you found time in your in your busy schedule to to join us again. It's great having you on so soon after your initial your debut with us uh, not too long ago. So thank you very much for the insights uh, and the perspective that I don't think uh, we get to hear too often here in Europe and certainly in the UK. And our audience here in the UK, I think, uh, will will definitely learn something um, from what you have to offer. Yeah, thanks again, Mark. Really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Lovely. Have a terrific day. We'll be in touch again. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. We know that if you're listening to this show, we know that you know how to subscribe to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please connect with us. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be in the game with you in a few days with our new episode.